Before we get started, there are a couple of things that we should probably just walk through that are more logistical in nature. You can drop an expletive. Yeah. <laughs> so we're pretty yeah, relaxed. We're all the damn time. Oh, fucking thank God. Oh, good. There's, there's a good cold open for us, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. On this episode, we talk about the future of the office and, frankly, whether there is one. Stay tuned. Welcome, Brian Elliott, Executive Leader of Future Forum and SVP at Slack, formerly GM of Slack and Google Express. Brian is here today to tell us about Future Forum, which is aimed at transforming the way we work. We will also be talking about the book he recently co-authored with Sheila Subramanian and Helen Cup, titled How the Future Works. If you're a leader and you're confident you've figured out work from anywhere or return to office or some permutation of the like, you may want to seriously rethink your objectives, methods, and messaging and read this book. But hey, if you want a second opinion, there is a perspective of someone else who's maybe more qualified than me. It's the former CEO of PepsiCo and their Nui, and I think her sentiment and choice of words capture the essence of this quandary. We have arrived at a moment where we can backslide into the status quo or transform society for generations to come. How the future works makes the latter possible providing us with a blueprint to deeply consider the future of work. It is a must-read for today's leaders, end quote. So Justin, Indra, Brian, yes. and I all have BCG in common. <laughs> so that's the one common thread. We, we all have Chicago in common. Um, and You guys are really great at PowerPoint and then uh, four-quadrant uh, grid. The two-by-twos. <laughs> yeah. I have to unlearn a lot of things. It made BCG a lot of money. So oh, absolutely. Bless Still does. the two-by-two. Yes, I'm sure it does. Brian, Justin, and I have known each other, as you know, for over two decades. We've collaborated on various innovations, largely technology and media-centric for work. We've studied at business school together before that, and we've collaborated on all kinds of creative endeavors along the way, including this podcast. So, Justin, why don't I hand it over to you? Oh, thank you, uh, Anju. And so, uh, thanks for joining us today, Brian. Uh, I will say, full disclosure, uh, my the company I work for now really uh, are market is class a office so i i am unbiased but uh i have to disclose that <laughs> not a problem because it's Justin. in my interest for people to go back to the office that being said uh, i don't disagree with your points of view i'll just throw that out there too so why don't you tell us a little bit about future forum and what really drew you into writing the book sure so future forum itself is a think tank and it's it is backed by slack but uh, to your point justin it's also backed by some other parties uh miller knoll happens to be one of them the office furnishings company who you can imagine makes most of their money uh, furnishing office equipment. Uh, people use the stuff at home too, but you know they, they have their own interests on that side of things that are interesting also. Along with Boston Consulting Group, ta-da, Anju and, and Mari's um, uh, alma mater. Uh, and I dream in green. Leadership. Yeah, exactly. And the third is uh, a group called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. They're a nonprofit focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, bring some expertise and insight there that, to be honest, uh, I lack. And so the objective of Future Forum is to uh, do two things. We, we do a lot of research. We have a uh, survey instrument that's our primary research vehicle that we run every quarter. It's a bit over 10,000 knowledge workers that we interview uh, around the globe and ask them a series of questions about their productivity, their work-life balance, their stress levels, their you know, sense of belonging with their organization, a lot of other stuff, whether they're going to stay in their job, whether they're going to leave. And we use that and cut it 100 ways to Sunday to understand what's working and what's not and, and for whom. And then the other thing that we do is we just we work with leaders. We look, work with um, leaders across a huge range of organizations, you know, financial services, consumer goods, uh, healthcare, uh, industry, technology, you name it. Um, 
and a lot of it is sort of small group uh, coaching and honestly sometimes co-counseling, um, helping mm-hmm. leaders figure out what their own future work is going to look like, um, how they're reacting to sort of the changes that we've all learned about during the course of the pandemic, and and a bit of you know, like how do we come out better. Uh, so that's that's future form in a nutshell. Um, Sheila Helen uh, joined me in, in founding this uh, almost three years ago now. Um, and it really was um, two things. It was some work that we had been doing uh, at Slack in our research uh, department that was always hidden uh, inside the organization because all it did was feed uh, product uh, road mapping, which was great, but never saw the light of day outside that we all thought was interesting. And the second is, especially as the pandemic started, sort of this realization that we had this much more open and um, plastic moment where people were reconsidering decades and decades of conventional wisdom, myself included, and sort of leapt on that with an idea that uh, had been out there for a while with um, myself and Stuart Butterfield, Slack's founder, that we should have our own think tank at Slack and and went out and built it. And then about a year into it, we had enough between the research and the stories from different companies that we thought we should assemble this together. Uh, we, we publish on our website, futureform.com, but the book itself is intended to um, help people sort of put together a playbook, uh, a series of things that they can try and test. And it does work, you know, at an organization level, but you could also just pick it up as a manager and, um, and work through it and pick out, you know, the two or three things that you want to try to see if they work for you. Uh, and so that was the objective really was to help people find new things they could try to make work better for people. Right on. And I did notice the the tools at the end and the the workbook type orientation and some of those frameworks, which I think is constructive um, for people yeah. contemplating it. Yeah, it is. We we lean we lean heavily on the research just in terms of sort of building the the narrative in the first place and, and what we've learned and, and tapping academics and experts. But the objective of the book itself is to give people something that's pretty tactical in nature. Mm-hmm. There's a seven step framework in it, and each of the seven steps has a, a fairly um, specific set of toolkits that come along with it that you can try them out and you don't have to do them all. You can pick, Mm -hmm. you know, team level agreements and say, I want to start building team level agreements with my team and there's a template for it and you can go to town on it. Just, uh, you mentioned your 10,000, uh, person panel that you, you poll, you said a standing panel, like, uh, I'm assuming you, you reach out to the same 10,000 people over time. It actually does change because okay. we can't like, for example, we, we actually intentionally oversample for fortune 500 executives as one part of it. And getting the same Fortune 500 executives to take the same poll uh, 10 quarters in a row is actually impossible. <laughs> um, so it, it, it is a statistically sal- valid sample that we do um, uh, across you know, groups of people. So that what we, for, for example, when we cut into data on race and ethnicity, we uh, oversample in the U.S. to ensure that we have enough. And it, this is what, what in the industry parlance gets called knowledge workers. Most people call them office workers or desk workers. But in the U.S., when we, when we make sure we get race and ethnicity data, we need to make sure we got a statistically valid sample of, of black yep. as well as Hispanic, as well as Asian American employees. Yeah, we actually run a longitudinal study for the telecom industry. It's a global study and we, we do the same thing. We have a standing, it's not a standing panel of fixed respondents, but we do make sure that we're representative of the populations that we need to study exactly. and that the segments are balanced. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask maybe a semi-loaded question, <laughs> which Brian, if you remember me, I was shyer back in my BCG days, but uh, this was always sort of in my nature um, to just sort of drive at the thing that confounds me about all of this. Uh, so I spend a lot of time for work thinking about metaverse-like experiences and what that means for the evolution of user behavior and fulfillment, like way far out into the future. So with that as context and all the bias that would come with that, uh, I'm finding the concept of a physical office to be incredibly either dated or limited. And you know there are some beauties out there, right? There's Apple Park, IDEO has always had great spaces, Alphabet X, the Moonshot Factory is a really interactive, great space. But if we had to get down to just first principles based on all the research that your group has done, what is the point of the office? Because I think some of us have lost the plot on that. Relationships and connection. So um, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a, a slightly broad answer. Um, we'll start, let's start with Slack itself, actually, because I've been there for five years now and actually lead our internal, what we call digital first task force. And you'd think it would be easy because, you know, Slack is Slack, but... Uh, we were less than 3% remote pre-pandemic. We we're just as office-centric as anybody else. Uh, 
Um, people came to the office on an assumption that, you know, five days a week, nine to five was the standard operating procedure. And so we got hit with the pandemic in the same way that everybody else did. But, but even our rule is, uh, our, our, you know, our line with this is digital first doesn't mean never in person. We think it actually is important that mm-hmm. people get together episodically. What we see in our research, we can see in everybody's research that executives are more likely to want people in more often than, than individuals are. But when we ask individuals, uh, the, the reasons why they want to be together flip-flop almost quarter to quarter between, uh, I want to be together for collaboration and I want to be together for relationships. And so if you talk to Automatic or GitLab or some of the people that were remote even pre-pandemic, I actually think there's no such thing as a fully remote company. All of them would get people together at least once a quarter at a team level, and they would do the annual gathering you know, in Hawaii or someplace nice. And a lot of that was around the fact that um, human relationships are just easier to build if you spend a dedicated chunk of time together. And it's as much about the meals together and the volunteer activity and the exercises that you do together as it is you know, the work itself. And then you do need to do both. But I do think there's a really important role that physical space does play in team formation, especially new team formation, and in sort of at least episodic upkeep. You know, my own team is scattered across North America. We do a quarterly gathering uh, to get people in to San Francisco or New York. Uh, we may do Vancouver next, I'm not sure, just to have a way in which people can, you know, sort of recharge the batteries. And then there's entire businesses where that's just not possible. So we, we talk about Genentech in the in the book, and you've got R&D workers that need to be in the lab at least part of the week. But I think what the pandemic changed was they need to be in the lab two to three days a week. Uh, a lot of work that they do is analysis, and a lot of that analysis work doesn't need to be done in the lab. And so mm-hmm. changing the mindset is a big part of it. But I do think that there is, congratulations, Justin, an, an ongoing role for offices in all this, or certainly <laughs> for shared space. And what I see a lot of companies grappling with is, um, you know, how much we're we going to go back, quote unquote, right? The words back, the words return, um, I think are, are, you know, potentially part of the problem uh, versus how do we rethink you know, what the purpose of that space is, how we use it, uh, what we need out of it. Well, I think people ignore the fact that different businesses are going to have wildly different requirements, right? There's going to be a bell curve um, of how people need to collaborate. And there's also a difference between, I think people conflate um, remote work with asynchronous work, and that's not necessarily the same thing either. Um, Because there are some businesses, right, that are time sensitive, that having asynchronous communication actually is introduces latency that's unacceptable. Um, but for some businesses, it really doesn't matter at all. And that, that, you know, anyone who's worked with, with offshore developers and, you know, and has a, you know, 12 hour, uh, delay, generally speaking, uh, knows that you can figure that out as well. I think that's right, Justin. I think part of the challenge though, is most people have made an assumption that work is either entirely synchronous and entirely together or it's entirely remote and entirely asynchronous when the truth is what most people want is a blend of both of those, right? Our, our own research says that, you know, 65% of people want a hybrid solution. That's at the individual level. Execs want three to four days a week. Individuals want, you know, right. two days a week. Um, but the other one is, is time flexibility, which actually uh, blending synchronous and asynchronous has even bigger benefits to people as well as to productivity, as well as to outcomes. It's, it's an even bigger deal than location flexibility. I was going to say, I bring up an example, right? Um, uh, Apollo 13, when they need to come up with how they're going to fit the square filter into the, the round tube to save the, the astronauts, that's, that's not an asynchronous um, endeavor, right? There, there, you know, there was a time uh, uh, critical need for people to collaborate, which I think you know, there are times when people really it's more efficient to be, do that in person. I, I guess the only thing I'd say about that one is that's definitely one where you had to be synchronous because, and by the way, you had to be together because you're trying to figure out how to squ- fit a square piece into a round yeah. tube, which is a physical act that requires multiple engineering disciplines to come together. I'm sure you all see this all the time. Um, incident management on software tools um, is mm-hmm. one that definitely requires synchronous work, but it doesn't mean that everybody needs to get be together. In fact, sure. quite often they can't be because they're touching different parts of you know the problem. And so... They've all got to have one place where they're collaborating and having the discussion and sharing knowledge and information from different disciplines and different places. But it's certainly not, not co-location, and it's certainly not co-location at 2 o'clock in the morning. Agreed. So it's, it's interesting that in the last, like, 10 minutes of conversation, or maybe it's five minutes, Justin, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, nobody mentioned the word meeting. Oh, God. And that gives me a great amount of pleasure. I'd rather not mention pleasure. the word meeting. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm going into a three-day offsite with my team, and, and they're actually joining me to just watch me probably embarrass myself on stage for an opening panel as part of the offsite. But everything we plan to do for those three days is very hands-on, very shared experience, very collaborative in a practical, physical way. Fantastic. It is not about, let's sit on Zoom. We do have one person who got COVID who can't come in um, with all the teams that are converging, so yeah. she can't fly in, so we'll Zoom her in. But um, And that's by her choice, by the way. But it, it, this is... I do hear a lot of objections from people that I work with and people in other industries that say, if you call me back in just to sit in a huddle room on a video conference call, what is the point? Right? That's that's more alienating than not coming that's in. Right. I think part of what... Did, did you hear that in your research yes. as well? Yes. And, and we see it in, in the behavior of people too. So um, what we see in the research, uh, so 60, I said 65% of people want hybrid, 80% of people want some form of flexibility, right? But there's about 20% mm -hmm. of people that need to be in an office. They need to be because home doesn't work for them, the space doesn't work, or they need the separation or for whatever reason. But most people want that, that flexibility. The, the challenge that we see is a lot of organizations that have done the three-day-a-week mandate, um, and there are a lot of them, or worse yet, the five-day-a-week the five -a -week mandate is problematic for a bunch of reasons. It just cratered at the beginning of the year people's work-life balance, their stress levels, their productivity. That's another loaded M word, by the way, mandate. Yeah, and that, and that's, we but that's try the issue. really hard to like steer. Yeah, that is exactly the issue. Because Keep going. Sorry. I'm sure you all see this and get this, but like, you know, one size does not fit all for most organizations. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, I'll give you a story from an executive that shared this with me last week. We've mandated three days a week. And by the way, what we've mandated is during those three days a week, people should have all their meetings. So what I'm doing is I'm going in three days a week and I'm sitting there having meetings and almost all of my meetings, because we're not all in the same building, let alone the same floor, let alone the same city, are on Zoom. And so three days a week, I'm commuting to the office to do Zoom meetings. And then two days a week, yes, I have a little bit more time to do my individual work, but I'm actually not getting any of the socialization in that I want to get in when I'm in the office because we've jammed all the meetings onto those three days. Yeah. Yep. And, yep. and that that doesn't go over very well, period. But most people are just struggling with the, my team's not even really doing the coordination, right? So I'm showing up, the office is less than half occupied from where it was before. I'm spending my day on Zoom meetings. Why did I bother? So there are, you know, tactics people are starting to use, but the, the organizations that are moving from that kind of mandate to let us get more prescriptive with the types of things that we would like you to do together, like new team formation. Please, if you're going to form a new team, schedule, you know, two to three days for the kickoff and the socialization and other things like that. And for a lot of like sales organizations are one of the ones I see this the most often, figure out your anchor days. And if your anchor days are Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which most people are Tuesday, Wednesday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Thursday, then use that for the pipeline review and the staff meeting and your one-on-ones, uh, but give it some space so that people can also have lunch together, um, go out for drinks afterwards if they want to, that type of thing. So there's been an argument that, you know, you, you talk about work-life balance and uh, there's been some arguments that when people are, are remote, actually, they have worse work-life balance, but they're not stuck in a car for, for an hour and a half a day. Um, what do you, what do you, what does your research tell you about that? Because it seems like some, during the pandemic, some people actually ended up working, you know, 12, 13 hours a day. Yeah. I think we spent a lot of time working remotely in a pandemic, which was um, pretty horrible for, you know, no matter what, like you're either in a situation that was bad or a situation that was worse. You're either, you know, stuck at home with limited options. And so therefore maybe you, you know, worked excess hours because honestly you didn't have a lot else going on in your life because you couldn't get out. Or you were attempting to work from home while dealing with childcare situations or elder care or a healthcare issue or a loved one who was ill and, and just, you know, really horrible situations. What we see now is that work-life balance definitely benefits and so does productivity and so do stress levels from giving people the flexibility that they're looking for um, because people have found ways to do other things in their lives, right? We've, uh, things have largely reopened and the, you see all the stories that are like movie theaters are, you know, getting full again and the airplanes are all full again and the restaurants are all full again, but the offices aren't full again. And I think that comes back to the fact that people can you know, live their social lives and there's a purpose. I get on an airplane for a purpose. I go to a restaurant for a purpose. I get socialization out of it. Unless I've got a purpose telling me to get to the office isn't quite the same as do I want to go out for dinner. There's a subtext to that that I think maybe people don't want to talk about it because they think it doesn't really lend itself to conversations of productivity as professionals. But everything you talked about 
that's purpose-driven, it's usually something that you're going to get a personal and a professional ROI on, but there's also some level of joy yeah. or like some satisfaction in I'm going to do this the most efficient, targeted way. This is working smartly or this is working happily. And I don't think we're having that conversation about why people are maybe not enjoying their time in the office. So one thing is meetings, right? And being in huddle rooms yeah. and being overscheduled. And that's just horrible and you know, in any context. Uh, what else is not bringing people joy when they're returning to the office and that leaders can really give some thought to that maybe they just left it aside, but it's something that requires some level of examination. Well, it, it turns out that open office floor plans were never that great in the first place, which plenty of people would have told you pre-pandemic, yep. but it's only gotten worse, right? So open office floor plans, we spent, um, and, and Justin, sorry, on the commercial real estate side, y'all know this all too well. <laughs> you know, we spent two decades jamming, you know, more people into less space, essentially. And if, if you know, our company's experiences like others, those open floor plan seats were never that well occupied in the first place, but they took up, you know, half the space in your office. And what you would see is no ability to get a conference room whatsoever. But if you wanted to attempt to do work in an open office floor plan, you, you could give it a shot. The What people are experiencing now is you're going back and you're attempting to sit in those open office floor plans and you're doing more Zoom meetings, which doesn't work particularly well when you and your neighbor are both trying to do it at the same time, right? Not uh, terribly conducive. And the meeting space is just as crowded as ever. So there's a need to sort of rethink, um, you know, why people are coming back when they're coming back, but also the space itself, right? Make it more conducive to um, coordination, collaboration, uh, relationship building, but also just make it more modular. We're doing some stuff with Slack's old headquarters in San Francisco just to make it much easier to have, you know, a space on a third floor that used to be open office floor plan so that you can move things around and create, you know, little pods. If you want a pod of six versus a pod of 12 versus a pod of 18, make it easier for people themselves to do it as opposed to immovable furniture that has to be changed out with, you know, months of planning and, and execution. So greater flexibility in the space, you know, can go a long way to making that happen. I think the other thing you're getting at, though, Anju, is is just productivity. Period, and and meetings. And one of the one of the things that does come out in our research time and again is that, and in conversations with people, is that um, an overabundance of meetings, whether it's in the office or at home, has become a real problem. The stat in our in our data is 94% of people want schedule flexibility, and and that doesn't mean they want a free for all. What it means is they want something less than nine to five jam full of meetings. They want some guarantee that some part of their day, some part of their week is meeting free so they can do heads down work. We all have had this experience. You two undoubtedly have too. We're like, my calendar ends up looking like Swiss cheese, right? If I don't actively yep. manage it, people keep tossing stuff on it, even though I've got an EA. It, you know, finding two hour block of time to get work done is almost impossible. And so that gets all shoved into nine o'clock in the evening after you've had dinner or after the kids are in bed. And I don't know about you, maybe you guys are night people. I'm not, I'm not that great at nine o'clock at night. So I end up getting up early and doing it then. Yeah. I am a 4am riser for that very reason. For that reason. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I get up at five 30. I'm not, not quite the early bird that you are Justin, but same thing. Yeah, no, that that is definitely a tension around boundaries. And, you know, frankly, if you're working in an innovative space, you have to be able to chase an idea down in the moment when it's alive in your brain. So you do need that open space in your calendar to be able to say, okay, wait, I'm going to pull on this thread. I'm going to call, you know, a couple of the technologists in, explore this topic and see what we can come up with. Well, if you're back to back in meetings, right. that flexibility doesn't happen. And I think, you know, people want to talk about this what is it? Serendipitous, uh, like the collisions, the happy collisions. I'm, I'm missing the the verbiage on this. Emergent conversation. Yeah. 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 So, you know, everybody talks about how beautiful these are, and this is why we need to be in spaces. And Apple Park was designed with that in mind, with everything flowing down into the courtyard. And yeah, that's really romantic and beautiful. But if you're in back-to-back meetings, it is never going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> so, and there are so many meetings that are just useless. Like I hear about... If a meeting is an hour long, tell me why. Like, what is really happening in there that can't be shrunk down? And I, I, I do hope that, if anything, people execute a whole lot more meeting discipline coming out of this. If people people don't leave your meeting feeling like they've learned something new, they've done something important, they've related to somebody in a new profound way, like preferably all three of those, if not two of the three, you have failed That's as excellent. that meeting manager, I love in that. my opinion. One of, one of the things yeah. we talk about in the book is the 40s, that the meetings should be uh, to debate, decide, um, discuss, or development, right? Development of people, because that is an important thing to make sure you're doing synchronously. I don't think we should conflate 
uh, meet, you know, the number of meetings with either remote or in person. No. But that, that is true. I think it's a separate issue. Microsoft put out a stat saying that um, Microsoft Teams uh, video meetings growth was 252% uh, over the past year and a half, right? So, um, and we all feel the joys of Zoom fatigue and all the rest of this stuff too. We, we've done some things ourselves to try to put some limits in place. My team has what we call core collaboration hours, 9 a.m. until one o'clock on the West Coast is when we stuff our one-on-ones and our team meetings and our cross-functional meetings, which requires some discipline with our cross-functional partners. And that way, you know, folks who are on the East Coast, folks with kids, folks with other obligations, or just people who want the time know that they're going to have, you know, some bigger blocks, you know, before or after that to, to do work. And it's not that we don't occasionally step on those, but it's a change of the expectation, right? That means that someone has to ask. I have to ask before I schedule a three o'clock with the team, especially considering that, um, you know, several people are New York or North Carolina, and uh, that would be intruding in a different way. Yeah, I think historically people have used meetings uh, as a proxy for actually managing, <laughs> which yep. uh, it is not, right? It's the confusing motion with action. Yeah, and that's we saw that early on in our research. Um, middle managers, frontline managers are the ones that are, by the way, still today, most under stress, most likely to leave your organization, um, more than ICs, more than executives. But they're also the ones that if they weren't trained or tooled, what they would do, especially in the early days of the pandemic, is they would just call another status meeting, right? Like, think about the job of frontline managers these days. It's usually not that your entire team is working on one thing. You've got a team of people. They're probably working on, each of them is probably working on some portfolio of projects. And you find yourself mm-hmm. responsible for reporting up uh, the chain of command, how those things are going. And if you're not trained in good asynchronous ways of actually gathering that information, what you do is you just add more meetings onto the calendar in order to find out what people are working on and how it's going, at which point you're just adding frustration to the team and impeding them from getting the work done because they're spending their time you know, waiting for that to happen. I read this interesting statistic, and, and maybe you've seen it, maybe you actually heard it uh, in your follow-up with Microsoft, but uh, I'm going to quote Jess Gordon, Corden, excuse me, I hope I pronounced his name properly. Um, it's from Windows Central, which I think is one of their blogs. And the quote says that 87% of Microsoft employees feel as though they are productive while working from home. Whereas 80% of Microsoft's managerial layer thinks workers are less productive. And Satya Nadella goes on to talk about a variety of things around opening our perspective and doing some perspective shifting in general. But it made me wonder if part of the problem here is that managers feel like they need to be seen managing people in order to feel like they've done their job of management, which is probably the more insidious version of FaceTime, not the Apple service, but FaceTime as in being in person, That's right. just to check the box of being in person. Uh, you know, did you did you hear anything about I, stuff I hear like that, this? I hear because, that a lot, and I hear it actually at senior levels also. And part of the challenge is, I mean, Andre, you know this, I'm, I'm, oh my God, now in my 50s, been leading and managing teams for several decades and been CEO of startups mm-hmm. and done this and that. And you know, a lot of the early learnings that all of us had were the way that you led and inspired and managed people were, you know, you got in front of the company, you did the all hands, which was on a stage and you got everybody together to get them inspired, but management by walking around, right? You would walk around to see how things were going and, and sort of tap them on the shoulder and do that. I think we're in a, in a, in a even different position than we were a year ago right now. And here's the challenge. Not only are some people coming back and others aren't more senior people are coming back, more junior people aren't in a lot of cases. But we're also in a position where the economy is tightening up a lot. And so leadership is just even more stressed than they've ever been before. And what they would do and what they would have done in 2008, 2009, when we had the last downturn is they'd start walking around, right? They, 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 would, they would start going down to, you know, the, the shop floor to the, to the office, you know, cubicle areas and start, you know, trying to get a sense on the pulse of the organization. And now they feel like they don't have that, that pulse in the same way. And sometimes that's because they're just not even in the right place to do it. What I mean by that is I've had this conversation with a bunch of organizations. The executives themselves, they aren't digital natives, right? We've now got two generations Mm -hmm. of digital natives in the workforce. And those people themselves are, you know, quite familiar and used to doing work together asynchronously to some degree, but also just communicating in those digital tools. And so a lot of executives aren't in those tools, whether it's Teams or Slack or other places. And because they're not, they actually don't see the conversation that's happening. They don't see the work as it's happening. And so you've you've sort of shifted the um, where the work is is being being done from being able to visibly see it because you're walking around an office to it's happening inside, you know, the, the digital headquarters that you've got over here. And I think that's what's causing this apprehension. And that's why you see this difference between 
you know, it's not just that employees think they're more productive. Our, our research, and you can look up Nick Bloom's stuff, and you can look up Raj Choudhury mm-hmm. from HBS, all show that people are actually more productive, like results are better. But executives mm-hmm. are afraid that they're not because they're not they're not in the mix. They're not seeing the work being done. I could see that. I actually, we cut, I talk about that tension internally as like the report out, report to mentality. If you're using a meeting to report out, there's probably a better way to have shared that work product. If you're using a meeting to report to someone that you got something done, you probably could have sent it beforehand and used all of that space to really converse, right? And that's get right. deeper on an issue, not just share the product. That's right. uh, but that's, that's not, that does require behavior change on the part of leaders, especially those that aren't attuned to working in that manner. Uh, and, and that's a struggle. What would you recommend to leaders that that's a paradigm shift for them? And they are used to being in environments like that. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's a it's a challenge and it's a change management challenge, right? And as leaders, we all have to mm-hmm. learn, you know, new skills. And a lot of us have over the past couple of years, a lot of folks, you know, became a lot more visible and vulnerable to their teams over the course of the pandemic. We so, suddenly saw into each other's, you know, living rooms and houses and all the rest of it. But you've got to kind of con- continue down that, that journey of, you know, learning new skills, le- learning new capabilities. Some of that can be as simple as um, getting somebody to show you uh, what it, what it is and how it works and, and and what your own teams are doing in it. Most every organization that we talk with, whether it comes to the tools people are using or how they're you know balancing out their meetings load versus asynchronous work, there's some part of your organization someplace that's already doing this. It might be you know a smaller firm that you acquired. It might be a team that's just you know a little bit more innovative. But most executive teams, when I talk to them, will say, "Oh yeah, that group over there, they actually do some really interesting stuff." Great. Do you know what it is? Well, not really, but I've heard it's really cool. Well, get get in and talk with them and see what they do and see how they right. do it. And so it's a little bit of that, which is that that openness. The other is it's a mindset shift. I mean, I learned early on um, this phrase. I don't know if this will sound familiar to you. Seldom wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> and that's wow. That, that was <laughs> yeah. That keep was, going. That, that that line, uh, which was great for a consultant in their you know uh, early to mid twenties. Because you had to be, you know, uh, sellable to more senior execs and all that. That was maybe helpful then, but boy, did I pay for it, you know, as I started leading and managing teams. And you've got to be able to do two things as a leader. You've got to be inspirational, motivational, point to the top of the mountain and say to people, here's what we are going to achieve. But you've also got to say, but I'm not entirely sure of the path. We're going to have to work together on how we get there. I don't have all the answers. I hired all of you because you are smart, engaged adults, and I expect you to help us figure it out. And I'm open to your thoughts and ideas. And, you know, as a leader, it's a it's a real shift in mindset for a lot, um, especially people who grew up, you know, with command and control type of infrastructures. But, yeah. you know, that that change is worth it. If you think about what's your ability to command and control your way in today's competitive environment, virtually nil, unless you're in a very protected industry. So when you hear from the most recalcitrant <laughs> uh, executives <laughs> out there. What are their top three reasons they think you're wrong? I'd say n- number one is, and the best ones are the ones where we get into a specific example. So here's one that comes up fairly frequently, which is early stage salespeople. Early stage uh, inside salespeople are making cold calls all day long. And that is a mm-hmm. hard job, right? It's it's in some sense emotionally harder than being a customer service agent because a customer service agent may have unhappy customers, but they've got scripts and they can help solve it and all that. And it's inbound versus getting hung up on all the time and all the rest of it. And what I'll get from people is our, our early stage salespeople without being together more often are just really struggling. And I give that some room and there is some accuracy to that. And there's some value to getting those people together. But then the conversation becomes, that's great. That's true for that group. But why would you then base your company's policy and do a mandate based on the needs of that group? Why not say, here's the types of guardrails we want to have as an organization? So those can be really, really fruitful conversations. The other is just the outright, I am successful in this. I have been successful. We have been successful. I'm not willing to take the risk that the ways in which we were successful for decades um, are not going to be what is best suited to get us out of the current situation we're in. That's sad. That's sort of the antithesis of innovation. I mean, you're just saying right there, we're going to go backwards. It is. It is. And, and, and it, but, it, but unfortunately, it's there. And, and usually the conversation that's, right. that's there that's fruitful is let's talk about some of your um, competitors and who are you worried about. If it's traditional industry, then you know, if it's financial services, we'll talk about fintech. Right, because almost all of them have some part of their organization that may be smaller that's actually supposed to be out, you know, doing battle in the fintech side of things, or they're worried about it. And so you've got to be open on that side. The other is there are competitors in every industry 
whose answer will be, that's fantastic. You should keep thinking that way because I'm going to take your most talented people. In, in financial services, that's uh, HSBC and Royal Bank of Canada that we profile yep. in the book that are out to you know steal talent away from the, the classic folks. And you, But you'll find those in every industry. You'll find people that are sitting there going, I'm going to compete for your talent on the basis of the flexibility that I will provide them. Should we call out Jamie Dimon specifically here? It's not just him. I mean, it's, it's I think, you know, great. I, 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 think, I think it's also hard to paint. Like Jamie has also changed his tune on at least some of this, and he's listened to his own team and his own people, which is why they went from an assumption that they ought to be back five days a week to being you know a more hybrid organization. And I think it also depends on where you sit within some of those organizations. If you're in, you know, if you're in branches, your, your job, by the way, as a as a as a branch manager, is to manage the, the the branch that you're in. But what's what becomes interesting is you know what's flexibility mean even in that part of the business. So Jamie's actually made some made some uh, changes himself. I, I'd say in the past year. So I, I think a big part of being a successful knowledge worker is the ability to learn, learn very quickly, new things, synthesize what you're learning, and then to be able to influence others, right, to do something productive with that knowledge, right, with everything that's been pulled together in that experience. And what I discovered, at least with my teams, and this could be totally anecdotal, it's certainly not statistically significant, um, but I am curious if you saw that in your results as well. What I discovered is while people were spending a few days working remotely, and we would still come in and meet each other physically during the pandemic every now and then, like there was just a desire to get together for like an yeah, hour with, please. and we wore our masks or, or we sat outside, yep. right? Like, you know, we sat outside our office. We have a lovely pond. Um, so we would do all that. We would convene. We would convene for lunches and happy hours every now and then, all outdoors, all socially distanced. But what I found was giving people that flexibility in our teams meant that they were reading more. And they were reading more and studying more things because they actually had the space and solitude in their home offices to be able to focus on a technical paper. It's really hard to read a technical paper when you've got a bunch of people milling around you. It's hard to go look stuff up when you don't have four monitors that you've customized to do your investigations. And I personally feel like the reason why there was greater productivity is we were all able to focus on what we needed to focus on and design our spaces so that we could be most productive in doing that, that pursuit of knowledge, and then the application of what that knowledge entails. Is that true for others, or is this just a function of the kind of lab that we work in and the kind of work that we do? I think what you're, what you're talking to is what you all did, which is, which is great. And we had some similar stories ourselves, too. Like I, Helen, Sheila, and I would get together for lunch. <laughs> We'd find an outdoor spot in the East Bay. Uh, and, and grab a meal together every once in a while because we sort of missed each other. And then we would do the same sort of thing and support just even regional gatherings of people because that connection was important. I think the, the, the bigger deal is giving people the headspace, whatever their job is. And almost every job involves some form of creativity, right? You can be a salesperson, but your job also involves crafting really good sales pitches. And you can't do that if somebody gives you a half hour chunk of time to do it. You need to digest information about the client, know them, understand them, do the customization, spend a couple of hours dedicated working on it. And that comes back to how we use our time more than it does even how we use our space. I do think there's also, and, and you, you both are bigger experts on this than I am, from an innovation perspective, there's real value in breaking up your day of going outside and going for a walk, no matter if that's, you know, mm -hmm. in an office environment or, or doing it from home of, you know, putting on, you know, the, the headphones and listening to some music for a while of doing something that gets you out of the sort of rut that you've managed to work yourself into. And you can't do that if your day's been jammed, you know, with meetings on top of it. The other thing that we see in our research that's really important for all this is psychological safety. And it shows up, we did a piece in 2021 around teams and creativity and co-location, uh, uh, hybrid, uh, remote, had no impact on people's assessment to their team's creativity. But what did was um, whether or not, you know, you, two questions. One was, uh, do you feel like your team can take risks? And the other question was, do I feel safe asking questions? And both of those had a much bigger impact on creativity, which isn't surprising because we all know that people's ability to say things that are, you know, quote unquote, dumb questions or heretical or new ideas. That's what that's what drives innovation, not just putting people together in front of a whiteboard. I also think if you um, if you're in the world of video conferencing or in digital tools, it is very hard for people to hold court. And there are a lot of people that just default to holding court. And when they do, they, they sort of snuff that conversation from being able to happen because you're in a shared physical space. That person seems so much larger than life. You know, they're commanding, you know, the dynamic to work in a certain manner around them. And yeah, you know, when you're in video conference, it's pretty hard to accomplish that. Yeah. So it becomes, uh, it levels things out in certain ways. Um, I'm curious. I'm going to bring up something that alarmed me when I read the book. And 
you know, someone who comes from a minority background, I'm sort of questioning myself as to why I didn't even think about this. It appears that not only do people, do perspectives differ when it comes to the level of the organization and your type of role, whether you're an IC, whether you're a manager, the level of manager you're at, whether you're on the executive team, et cetera, that those perspectives came out very differently on a variety of issues. I am suspecting that you also saw that with demographics, yep. like, you know, with different ethnic groups. And and you allude to that in some of the anecdotes, but I would love you to share just how different the lived experience is in the office environment for people from different backgrounds and how we really need to think about the future of work in the context of embracing those individuals and folding them in. Yeah. And this showed up even in the first round of the research that we were doing. So uh, summer of 2020, Dell Yourself Back, after we'd all been shoved out of offices and into homes, one of the things that we measure is a sense of belonging. You know, what's my sense of belonging with my team? And on average, that sense of belonging fell in summer of 2020, which wasn't surprising because it was sort of a shock mm-hmm. to the system for, for most people. And for most people, you know, they were used to that belonging being built by running into people and having lunch together and, and doing things. And it's the reason, Anju, why your team wanted to get together and have lunch. But uh, when we dug into the data, uh, it didn't fall for everybody. It fell for white knowledge workers in the US. It rose for black and Hispanic. Hispanic Latinx uh, office workers in the U.S. And we got together a group of academic experts on this one. And Brian Lowry uh, at Stanford uh, was the first person to say this. Uh, He said, as a black professor on Stanford's campus, I feel it myself. Uh, Five days a week, nine to five on campus is taxing because I have to code switch. I have to watch how I walk, how I talk, how I show up. I have to be kind of careful and cautious at times. And the ability to work from home even a few days a week or the ability to dial into a set of conversations, then dial back out, gives me a chance to recharge my batteries. And, and what we've seen since then is that sense of belonging issue. And by the way, the, it's not that, you know, sense of belonging got better than it was for white workers, for black uh, workers. It, it, it didn't, it just closed some of the gap. What's happened since then is for most organizations, sense of belonging has come back. In fact, to the point where the worst sense of belonging is most often with people that are five days a week in the office. But it's closed a lot of gaps. So black, Hispanic, Asian American, Pacific Islander uh, in the U.S., employee sense of belonging has almost closed the gap with their white colleagues over the past two, two and a half years now. And what we see in the data is those groups are much more likely to want to work from home less often than their white colleagues. And it's not that they want to be fully remote. It's just that they want the break more than their white colleagues do. And people coming back, not surprisingly, are more often white. They're also male. They're also older. They're also non-caregivers. And that's the other side. 60% of women with kids in the US want to work from home two days a week or less. That's our last quarter's worth of data. That number has grown every quarter. And think about it in the following context. We're in theory post-pandemic now. So in theory, in we all know this isn't fully true. Like schools have reopened, but a lot of childcare caregiving infrastructure is still not back to where it was pre-pandemic. But uh, disproportionately, the, the burden of of, uh, of being a parent, of being a caregiver falls on women. Probably the source of our underemployment problem of women that's been going on for decades Absolutely. since World and, War II. Exactly. And, and you see this in other- We got them into the workforce and then we retired them out Yeah, over we, we lost, what, 30 years worth of progress over the course of the pandemic. Yes, exactly. And even now, I think the latest number that I saw was something like a, over a million uh, women still not back full force in the workforce. And that's disproportionate to men. Which is not just an economic problem. It's a tragedy. It's a social it, tragedy it that it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's it, ended up this way. Yeah. And so so the thing that we talk with executives about is um, proximity bias in particular, at least, at least in, in like the work that we do. The one thing we want to make sure that executives know and understand is if you are one of those more traditional executives that is thinking about hustle culture, that is thinking about um, Joe shows up at 8 a.m., Joe leaves at 8 p.m., and so therefore Joe is is dedicated to the company and we should reward Joe. You're missing out on the fact that you're disproportionately going to be rewarding your white male um, employees more than, than others. And you're rewarding the wrong thing uh, more fundamentally. The, the biggest thing that we try to get people to understand is there's a huge win-win here. If we can get people, if we can train managers on how to focus on and how to understand what the outcomes are they're looking for their teams to generate, you know, doing outcomes-based management as opposed to attendance-based. It's a win for the organization and it's a win for a level playing field uh, for people. And so it's a huge opportunity if we get it right, but it's also pretty awful for organizations that haven't made that connection, haven't thought about the fact that, you know, their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals and their future work plans are, are tied at the hip. We're seeing some stories that use our data out there to, to tell this, but but not enough, to be honest. 
And I'll just say this on behalf of the introverts that are out there. I think many of them have thrived during the pandemic because they were actually able to work in a way that didn't drain them. And honestly, there's so much talent that's just in that portion of the population. Finding out a way to engage them so it's healthy for them is really crucial for our future success across all industries. Helen Cup, who's one of my my co-authors and co-founders on this, talks about that all the time because that's that's her in a nutshell. And I am also one of those people that's guilty of uh, holding on to that pen at the whiteboard uh, for dear life because I want to, you know, command and control the room historically. And it's people like me that create problems for people like Helen, to be blunt. Um, The tendency to think that getting people back into a room and doing traditional brainstorming with a whiteboard is going to solve, you know, innovation problems misses the fact that the root of the issue is the people that may have had the most different ideas in the room are the ones that are most likely to keep their lips shut because, you know, they're, they're not the in the moment people, or they don't look like the rest of the room, or they're too new. And so you're just sort of shutting them down at the start. Yeah, that's actually reflective of another, we should probably do another episode on this, but the whole thing about brainstorming and when when you generate ideas has shifted, right? To that point. Yeah. Um, I would love to get an industrial psychologist to talk about how we've evolved and how we operate in that zone. Keep going, Justin. Sorry. Note to self. There's a lot of research that just says basically, Define the problem efficiently, uh, give people space on their own to generate ideas, and then come in and bucket and evaluate ideas. That's what you should be doing together as a team to vet those ideas. Yeah. Uh, you all have probably heard this term, but the, the word we use for that is brainwriting. Um, yep. mm-hmm. And we do that with our own research work. Like the the when the when the study comes out, when a survey comes out, it's a 120-page long report. And the ask of people is spend time over the next week, heads down, two hours, notifications off, going through it and finding and pulling out what you think are the most salient observations, then toss that into a doc and then share that. We share them all together into one big pile. And hopefully by doing that, you you know don't have the pre-filtering that people tend to do otherwise. And you get you know a wider range of ideas. I have a friend, uh, Anju knows as well, Matt Phillips, uh, who does uh, kind of corporate ideation for a living. And he says, brainstorms at most uh, companies are just meetings with better food. <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. Matt's a trip. There, there was another warning in your book that stood out to me because I think it doesn't just apply to the future of work. I think it applies to just how we should operate. And I, I took notes on that one mentally. And it was that if you form committees to go do decision-making on behalf of the organization, don't do it in a vacuum. Or that's what I took out of it. Like, you know, you need to have everybody have some level, everybody needs some level of agency. That's right. And when you go as a committee and do a bunch of deciding on things in your own little circle, in your own little clique, and come back and report out and you miss the mark, it is not only just wrong, it can be offensive and it can be demoralizing. And there are a lot of committees that make a lot of decisions of, on all kinds of things, yeah. right? You know, we've got a bunch of committees at our office. There's a bunch of committees that my friends are on. And, you know, I'm like, you know, how do you guys figure out what you're focused on? And it's like, I don't know, we set a, we set a goal and then we go pursue it and then we we do readouts. And what's the better way to do this, yeah. especially when it comes to future of work, thinking that, but just even more broadly? So the, the first challenge is like, where's, where's the committee sitting? At what level is it? And how representative is it? So first level of problem is 60 some odd percent, depending on the quarter. Uh, last time out for us, I think it was like 63% of execs, this is Fortune 500 execs that we oversample, tell us that their future work planning is happening at the executive level um, with little to no direct input from employees, meaning they may run a survey, but that's sort of the extent of it. And the challenge there is they're too distant from the work, number one. Number two, they're not representative of their own employees, right? The executive suite never is demographically representative or rarely is. So, you know, the the thing that we recommend is, you know, figure out what the task force is that's pulling this together, but it can't also just fall to your HR team or your HR plus IT team plus, you know, a comms person. It's who is it that you're going to plug in that represents marketing, sales, product, engineering, customer support, you know, you name it. How do you make sure it's got demographic representation, meaning gender balance, racial balance, and not representative of your organization today, but of what what you want it to be? By just thinking about and working that composition in the first place, you're going to end up with something where you've got a group of people that are a more effective sounding board, but that group can't also, I think to your point on you, act in isolation. There's got to be ways that you're taking the work even before it's complete and be willing to share, here's where we are currently, here's what we're thinking. One of the things that we did with our own digital first task force in Slack was we did most of our work in public. You know, we did it in a Slack channel. We would share out, you know, here's where we are now. Here's the thing we'd like people to try. And we had this line that we used, which is we're after progress, not perfection. 
we know that this is about experimentation and iteration and, and continued growth in learning. And we're, we're fortunate in a lot of ways because we, we started that conversation at the executive level to make sure we at least had some common principles and, and framework for this. But even just saying that and doing that gets you a lot further than saying, okay, well, we've come down from the mountain and, and here's the you know 10 commandments of future of work and, and what we're going to do as an organization for the next decade. Because the honest truth is none of us, myself included, knows how all of this is going to evolve. And it's going to be about you know continual experimentation and iteration. Brian, how would you connect DEI back to how organizations should be thinking about future of work? I think the, the most important connection is around uh, trust and, and really thinking through how do you show trust through uh, to your team, to your organization by saying you really are going to focus on the outcomes, not on you know what you think from a conventional wisdom perspective is the right way to get there. That sounds easy, but I think for a lot of leaders and a lot of managers, it's actually you know quite hard because you've got a lot of preconceived notions based on you know your prior success, your organization's prior success. That it must be that you know in order to for us to have the greatest results, this is the how I want you to do it. But you've got parts of your organization that have different perspectives, that have different needs, and allowing them the space to experiment, iterate, and try new ways is going to get you better outcomes, but also is going to be more inclusive. It's going to help them focus on meaningful outcomes for the organization without feeling like they have to fall into your preconceived notion of what success looks like. And so if you can really do that, what you're doing is you're saying to the organization, I trust you to figure out the how, but let's get aligned on what the outcomes look like. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And, And to that end, I think outcomes that are shared, they give people hope that progress is being made. That's right. Right. I mean, we tend to live in a fact-based universe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nothing, nothing's clearer than that, right? In a lot of ways. Did, did we miss anything, Justin? Did you? Did we miss anything uh, on Unless your you end? want to do a very straight plug for all the different ways people can uh, read <laughs> your genius. Plug away. Plug away. We like promo. And, and, and by the way, for anybody that wants to read uh, all of our content, uh, futureforum.com is our website. It's got our quarterly research reports. It's got a ton of playbooks on almost every you know future work-oriented topic imaginable. And it's got a, a link to the book itself, How the Future Works, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Yes, well worth it. Well worth the read. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.